Hello, I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. Woke capital, social liberalism, especially focused on critical race theory and its intellectual children, anti-racism and equity, carried out by businessmen rather than politicians or traditional nonprofit activists. Much has been written about it, but what does woke capital look like from the inside? That's the subject of Woke Inc., Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam, a new book written by biotechnology entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswani, who has seen the growth of woke capital from inside his own corporate boardrooms. Mr. Ramaswamy joins me today to discuss his book. Uh, Vivek, if you could tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, you've described yourself as a traitor to your class. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, well, look, I wasn't uh, born into elite America, but I have certainly lived it for the last 15 years. I went to Harvard was at the top of my class there and then went to Yale Law School. I've worked at hedge funds that you know, earned notoriety in the 2008 financial crisis, got mentions in the big short, et cetera. So I've seen the 2008 financial crisis from the front row seats of elite capitalism. I've founded successful companies, including a multi-billion dollar biotech company, and I've founded some tech companies along the way too. I know how the elite business world works. And, and I think the thing that I was supposed to do was to you know, play along with the same lines that everyone else in my seat would play along with. Wear hipster clothes, applaud diversity mm-hmm. and inclusion, muse about the racially disparate impact of climate change after flying on a private jet to Davos or wherever, whichever <laughs> fancy ski town was hosting the conference that year. It wasn't a bad life, but mm-hmm. I felt that the new trend of mixing morality with commercialism, with corporate leaders using their platform to flex their muscle, not just in the market for products, but in the marketplace of ideas. That was a new trend that I think was dividing our politics so, to a breaking point. And that's so that really brings us that stuff. brings us to some in, in your book, you lay out sort of the history and development of the status of corporation as it applies to businesses. And it in, interacts with what you're describing. So if you could lay that out and explain that uh, that history and that um the trade-offs that were involved in creating the, the corporation as we know it. Today. Sure, you know, and, and I'll be I'll be brief about it here. I mean, there's a reason there's a whole book about it, but I'll give you the short version is that at the inception of the corporation, especially in the American context, there was a there was a vision for what the trade-off was for society's ask of corporations in return for providing corporations and their shareholders with many great benefits. And one of those great benefits was limited liability. The great invention that said that shareholders weren't going to be liable for the liabilities or debts of the corporation. Now, that was something that no ordinary person enjoys, but a corporation does. That was a legal creation gifted and bestowed upon corporate owners by the state itself. So the stakeholder capitalist movement says that in return for that great gift that society and our legal system gave to corporations and their shareholders – There was an implicit unspoken grand bargain in return, which said that actually the people who led those corporations owed an implicit duty to not just serve their shareholders, but also to do the right thing for society at large. It was a, you know, I think it's a benign enough view, but I think that that's one view. Mm -hmm. What I lay out in the book is a response to that perspective, one that Milton Friedman never really completely gave, even in his defense of classical shareholder capitalism. And what I say is that unlike Milton Friedman, who implicitly just rejects the idea of that quiet grand bargain, I actually acknowledge that there had to be a grand bargain. There was, even historically supported, a grand bargain at the birth of the American corporation, which said that, you know what, in return for these great gifts that society bestows upon corporations, there was an ask in return, but it wasn't an implicit unspoken ask. It was an explicit demand laid out in corporate law, which said that 
the directors of those corporations owe a fiduciary duty to maximize profit only for those shareholders. Now, that sounds counterintuitive. Doesn't that sound like a second gift to shareholders? <laughs> Actually, I make the case the answer is no. It was furthermore a mechanism for society to say that we want you corporations to stay in your lane. To right. use it, it, put, it, put corp- it put the business corporation in a box where it did a thing and it was commissioned by society to do a thing and that thing was to create profitable enterprises and do useful capitalist stuff. Exactly. And, and that's why even in the 18th and 19th centuries, if you got a corporate charter with all those great benefits like limited liability, you could not do anything more than the state gave you the charter to do. For example, if you had a corporation that was with the, had a charter to build a bridge, you couldn't build a road or a toll booth instead or else you'd lose those benefits like limited liability. Now, eventually the administrative procedures got easier and a state legislature didn't have to enact a corporate charter every time the state secretary Del- Delaware decided Delaware decided it wanted to have uh, a reason to exist. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, that's, that's unkind to Delaware, but 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 a competitive advantage in attracting, let's just say, business to Delaware, and made things a lot simpler and more streamlined. But that was the kind of the the history of the limited conception of corporate power, because limited liability was this great superpower. And so society was basically saying, if if Dr. Frankenstein was going to create Frankenstein's monster, he wanted Frankenstein to stay in the cage, and it, that cage was the cage of the market, the cage of capitalism. And then but, how does that? And then how does that? Uh, this this very bounded idea of what the business corporation is supposed to do, how does that contrast with what, what you call the Goldman, as in Goldman Sachs rule, and how that has been, uh, how that has gotten through woke capitalism, through, uh, we'll discuss environmental social governance investing, how has that gotten the business corporation out of its box? <laughs> yeah, look, I think that, it is, it is an extension of the demand of stakeholder capitalism, which says that the guys who make the market rules get to make the moral rules, too. That businesses get to impose their views on the rest of society using economic power and market force to do it on issues ranging from racial equity to environmental issues. And I think that whatever you think about the – I mean, we, we also to, – to just to be a bit you know, more in the headlines, I think it was Mark Benioff of Salesforce now is uh, – uh, taking action against Texas's uh, restrictive abortion rules by trying to move by offering to move any of his uh, any of his employees who want to be moved out of Texas from Texas. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it, it's ubiquitous. You see something like this in the news every day. It's now just the norm. It was stakeholder capitalism was supposed to be about challenging the prevailing model of capitalism. Today, it is the dominant system in big business today, and. You know, I think that what that means is it concentrates the power to make moral decisions in the hands of a small group of capitalist elites rather than in the hands of America's citizenry at large. And in a democracy, we settle our political questions and our normative questions through free speech and open debate in the public square, not through the use of force. And that includes economic force when a company like Goldman Sachs says it won't take any companies public in the United States if – Their board is insufficiently diverse along axes of race and gender. And whatever you think about the underlying policy, I don't want Goldman Sachs to be the arbiter of setting those societal norms. And it's not operating in a free market. That may be a response. It's a fiction. There's a regulatorily codified oligopoly status for a small group of banks that effectively serve as underwriters to decide who gets to go public and who doesn't. It's a system of crony going going public. That that's being listed on the stock market. Yeah, yeah. For example, right? You know, so so Mm. that's the that's the kind of thing that. I'm pointing out in the book is the way in which 
a small group of capitalist elites are flexing power that society never imagined them flexing outside of the market. And, and, and a lot of that, again, you know, you, you mentioned the initial public offering, but also like payment processors and other other choke points in business administration. Or the Internet, for that matter, in, in terms of actually deciding what can and can't show up online. You have Internet providers. You have cloud computing providers deciding which platforms can and can't be hosted. And I think that the idea that this is the free market working is a farce because today those businesses are often working hand in glove with the state, often with the party in power to be able to do their bidding such that we've created this new woke industrial complex, as I call it in this book, this new hybrid of big government and big business that's far more powerful than either one alone because each one can delegate its dirty work to the other. And I think that's the most scary form of a threat to liberty and prosperity and open dialogue and democracy of all, where government that's normally bound by its constitution is able to do through the back door using private companies to do what it can't do. Right. Through you, the front door you, you, com- you commandeer, you know, you commandeer Facebook to censor people who are protesting, you know, lockdowns or masks uh, because you can't do that as the state of Michigan, let's say. Exactly. And that's happening every day especially with respect to social media, especially with respect to censoring content. I mean, it was offensive earlier this year, even after I had completed the text of the book. You had social media companies, including Facebook, that would have banned you from their platform for suggesting that this coronavirus pandemic originated at a lab in Wuhan. That is increasingly the dominant theory, no matter what end of the point. More and more people are coming to that conclusion. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I think it is a... It is, from a personal standpoint, from having looked at this to some extent, I think it is almost certainly where this pandemic originated, either from a lab for a virus that was engineered there or further optimized for having certain characteristics in that lab. But let's put that to one side. We only get to truth by debating it, by ha- by engaging in a process of free speech and open debate. The scientific method de- depends on it. Democracy depends on it. And the use of economic power to concentrate advantages in the hands of a small group of capitalist elites to betray that process is, I think, one of the greatest – is probably the single greatest threat to democracy today. And if you say the wrong thing online, you risk being censored. That's one form of force. Mm-hmm. If you say the wrong thing on your own time at home or certainly in the office, you risk being fired. That is another form of economic force and power at work. And I think that our democracy works best when we settle the questions through through free speech and open debate rather than through the use of force. And I think that's – And you actually – in the book, you lay – sorry. In, in the book, you lay out a – a sort of a case study of how a woke corporation can use its uh, its wokeness not to help the world but to harm it. Uh, tell me about Unilever and the Kenyan tea pickers. Oh, this is a long story that, that you, you really want to get the whole thing from the book. But the short version, and it's really a staggering and very sad story, actually. Yeah, it's, is, it's appalling. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just saddening, uh, as, as whether you're on the left, right, center. If you're a human being, this is a this is a disheartening story. Unilever is probably one of the most woke companies in the global woke industrial complex. It's CEO. They own, they own, they own among other things, Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Of course, Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Their CEO waxes eloquent about the immutable laws of intersectionality, which say that whatever is good for black women is good for all people because it ultimately works down the chain of disempowerment. I mean, this guy's really well-versed and not just, not just nodding his head to wokeness, but really steeped in the lexicon. Yet when push came to shove, they didn't really do much for the black women who were on their Kenyan tea plantations, who many of whom were raided, some of whom were allegedly their own employees in the midst of political unrest, maimed, raped, killed, 
on their own tea plantation. And they had good, according to reporting by the Wall Street Journal, they had good reason to believe that that was political unrest was going to result in that situation. And they even took certain precautions, but not precautions that protected their plantation workers. And when they pressed for justice, pressed for economic recompense for how they had been wronged, Unilever had, it might talk a lot about the, the immutable laws of intersectionality for black women, but it had, but it hid behind the mutable laws of men when push came to shove, saying that actually these tea plantation workers didn't have standing to sue them. And better yet, when these tea plantation workers went to the UN to seek justice, they're left screwed over twice over because Unilever is actually funding a different part of the UN working group for women to be able to actually sing the praises of those immutable laws of intersectionality. Right. So, rather, so rather, so rather, they, you know, the, the, these, uh, these, these women go to the UN asking, you know, obviously it's the UN. All they can do is provide moral suasion. But even that recourse is taken away from them by the fact that Unilever has is uh, basically bankrolling is, comp- is compromising is, is compromising the UN's ability to provide that, moral and, suasion. And that, that's why I call it a woke industrial complex. It's not even woke capitalism. It's the layers of businesses, layers of the progressive movement, nonprofits that serve as the puppeteers in between, sovereign nations like China that are getting in on the act and using these same companies then as puppets of their own to criticize the United States and criticize the West while obsequiously, even if, diso- if, even if dishonestly praising China as a condition for getting market access to China. It is a racket. It is a global racket of the highest order. And I think that we today, conservatives and liberals both, fail to see it for different reasons because liberals are smitten with the causes that these companies happen to be pushing and conservatives or, 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 well even beyond even beyond being smitten some of them are simply bought off <laughs> some of them are bought off some but even, I'm talking about even at best the authentically minded progressives may look the other way with respect to the abuse of corporate power because they happen to love the woke causes that that these companies are pushing today, failing to miss that once a company becomes a vehicle to advance a progressive agenda, it becomes a vehicle to advance anyone's agenda, including the CCP's. Conservatives, for their part, are duped into submission by reciting whatever slogans they memorized in 1980 that rhyme with the free market can do no wrong, failing to recognize that that free market that they idealize doesn't exist today. And that's how both sides, I think, are, are duped and blinded into the rise of this new Leviathan that is far more powerful than anything that Thomas Hobbes envisioned 400 years ago, far more powerful than what our founding fathers envisioned 200 years ago, far more powerful than what even Ronald Reagan fought in 1980 in the form of big government. This is this new hybrid of big government and big business that I think is the defining threat to liberty and prosperity in the West today. And that's why I wrote a book because I think about it, because I think the first step towards a solution is seeing the problem with clear eyes. And I do offer some solutions in the book, too. But most importantly, I think a clear eyed, nuanced view of the problem, I think, is the first step towards collectively opening up a dialogue in overcoming our culture of fear to begin to talk openly again about what the solutions might be. I would absolutely second having read the book, the uh, it as a. as a vehicle to open one's eyes uh, and to see how all this, uh, the the woke capitalism, the ESG investing, and uh, the woke industrial complex uh, fits and forms together uh, and the influence that it has. Uh, Well, uh, Vivek, thank you again for joining us. Uh, The book title is Woke Inc. Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam. Our listeners can pick it up at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or any of a number of other booksellers. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week.